0: This message was presented at the GYC 2017 conference, Arise, in Phoenix, Arizona. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Good morning, everyone. Can you hear me? Okay. It's good to see you this morning, and it's good to... Be here with you again today, and um, I praise the Lord that my voice is still here. It's much lower than it normally is, but um, but God has been good, and at least I have a voice. Amen. We sometimes take for granted our voices, don't we? And yet, it is such an amazing gift that God has given us to speak for Him and to testify of him, and we want to continue that today. So I'd invite you to bow your heads with me as we pray, and as we open this last session up for this seminar series entitled 500 Years Later, Is the Reformation Still Relevant? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we have been impressed as we have looked at history, both from the Middle Dark Ages all the way through to the last few weeks. We have been impressed again that your word and its prophetic message is more relevant perhaps today than it has ever been in history. And we pray today as we close this seminar with some concluding thoughts concerning the Adventist Church and the special message that you have given this remnant movement, that your Holy Spirit would be present here. We are simply fragile vessels like the ancient pots that I hold so often as I excavate in the Middle East. Many of us come here today broken all of us desire to be molded and shaped by your spirit so that we can become the vessels and be the vessels today to carry this message forward. So we just pray again, that you would be with us and that these would not be my words or just my thoughts, but that you would use these, this broken vessel to, to communicate your word for today. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We began this seminar yesterday morning with a modern overview, if you will, very recent overview of where we have been in just the last few years and where we have gone as a looking at the events around the world and looking at the ecumenical movement in particular and the recent developments that have been taking place, particularly aimed and focused at the 500 year anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, which we noted was not simply a 500 year anniversary. It goes back hundreds of years earlier. And we uh, touched on some of those things. We continued in our second presentation to look at why does this matter Is it still relevant today? Is the protest, is the Reformation still important today? And we went through a number of different teachings in the Roman Catholic Church and contrasted that with the teachings that we find in Scripture and that we find in the early Reformers. And I have to be honest with you, this was a cursory one-hour overview. You could spend a semester or two or more studying all of this, and certainly there are many individuals who have spent their lifetime studying Reformation history. We just kind of encapsulated some of the highlights of that. We then um, continued in the afternoon looking at art and how art reflected and was used as artillery between the Reformers and the Catholic Church in the Counter-Reformation after the Council of Trent. And we witnessed how in art itself you can see visually in the media you can see this battle and this controversy taking place and uh, for some of you that may have been a new perspective because we don't often talk about art in that way Um, others of you may have heard some of those things before and I I just want to say a lot of that research and work um, Especially in relationship to the Noli map uh, that Giselle spent time uh, with you on yesterday, it was done uh, years ago when she was uh, pursuing some doctoral classes at Emory University and was taking a class in uh, ancient Rome on prints, maps, and, and art. And one of the things that her very well known professor said to her after she was finished with her research on the Noli map, and it was a very difficult semester because Um, all of the source material that she was using for that presentation was in Italian, all of it. And uh, she speaks Portuguese fluently. She was a French major in college and speaks French. They're both Romance languages, as you know, Latin-based languages, but they're not Italian. And uh, we're very dependent on Google Translate. This was years ago when it was just first starting to come out. And luckily, her father, who she does come from an Italian heritage and background, her last name, um, uh, uh, her um, maiden name was Sarli, which is a good Italian name from the south of uh, Italy. But um, her dad was able to help a little bit. But it was it was not easy. It was not easy. I remember pouring through those documents and those books and those articles. And uh, But this is what one of her professors said, or her professor in that class. She said, you know what? Digging back and looking at the sources, and this was something that the reformers were very into at Melanchthon and others. She says, I still believe that there is a truth to be found. You have to understand for a major professor of art history at a major university to say that in the 21st century is kind of unique because we live in a very postmodern age where truth is something that's very relative. And you kind of create the truth and the interpretation of the art based on your experience with it, not necessarily based on the art itself and what it originally was intended to convey. So that was very interesting. Um, At any rate, we went through two presentations. And today what I want to do is I want to go through um, and, and raise the question, and maybe I should have titled this a little differently. I would maybe retitle this the Reformation continues rather than the protest continues. The protest kind of seems very antagonistic, doesn't it? But I think that what we need to understand is that we, as a remnant church called for this time in Earth's history, we have a very special message to give. And that message um, is a continued message of Reformation. We cited Luther many times. We could have cited many other Reformers, the Magisterial Reformers, the Radical Reformers, Um, We cited Luther often, but Luther did not come to a complete understanding of all of the truths of Scripture, and we're still working towards that today. We cannot assume that we have everything and that we cannot continue to learn and continue to grow in our walk with God and in our understanding of Scripture. And so that Reformation in our own personal lives and in our interaction with the Bible, that Reformation must continue. And so... I want to look today with you at uh, some of the key elements that I believe make the Seventh Day Adventist so unique in this time in Earth's history that it has become for me. Um, and I've <laughs> been around a little while, but i um, am not as old as as some of um, my my, my in laws, my parents, who have been working um, in the church and and have been around much longer, but what has for me become a very convincing reason uh, to see our place as a prophetic movement in, in history. And I believe, I believe truly that God has called us for such a time as this. So we're gonna, continue, we're gonna do that um, today. Is it possible that the Seventh-day Adventist Church has been called for such a time as this? Is it a coincidence that so many of the unique doctrines, and I'm going to focus on a few of them today, and not not even all of these, okay? But the five S's. Sometimes we refer to them. My daughter just took a freshman-level class at Southern Adventist University in Adventist Heritage, and she learned about the five S's, which are kind of the more unique um, messages of of our church and what distinguishes our church. From many other churches, but the Sabbath, which will be tied into creation in our presentation today, the state of the dead, the spirit of prophecy, the continuing work of the spirit of prophecy today in the work and writings of Ellen White, and the sanctuary with Jesus as our high priest, and of course, our emphasis on the second coming. Several years ago, we had a special... Staley Lectureship at Southern Adventist University. And a very well-known Baptist theologian came and spoke on our campus. The Staley Lectureship um, and other lectureships that we have inaugurated since that time continue to um, open dialogue with other Bible-believing Protestant Christians that we bring to our campus in order to learn from them and for them to learn from us. And Calvin Miller had come That year, he is very well known as a writer, and particularly a well-known person for also some of his um, creative writing, um, very similar to kind of C.S. Lewis's uh, approaches with the Chronicles of Narnia and that kind of thing. He's written some kind um, of—I don't know if I would call it science fiction—but some kind of uh, works that that are uh, displaying the gospel in in a in a more story form. Anyway, he was sitting with us at dinner. And he asked this question. He says, why is the Seventh-day Adventist church growing in the leaps and bounds that it is around the world? What drives what you do? It was a very broad question. How do you answer that in a few sentences? But my former dean and my colleague and dear friend, Jack Blanco, who some of you know, um, worked in his own personal life in, in documenting his own a journey through scripture and created as a result of his own personal devotions, the clear word, uh, Professor Blanco did not hesitate in answering. And he said, it is very simple. He says, we believe that Jesus is coming very soon and we don't have time to waste. We need to get the message out that Jesus is coming and that people need to repent and come to him. And I thought, wow, that's, that's a nutshell, isn't it? That's the nutshell. That's what drives us in many ways. So today, what I want to focus on, we focused yesterday on the authority of the Bible alone, or sola scriptura. Today, I want to focus on the historicist interpretation of prophecy. And then we're going to look at uh, a few of these other elements. Just more in passing, I want to focus particularly on the Sabbath and creation, or particularly on creation, and look at that today the Reformation stood on the imperative of the Bible. It was the Bible that gave rise to these new insights that challenged Rome and its traditions. And it was the Bible that gave hope and gave freedom to the ancient, uh, well, ancient, I shouldn't say that, to the reformers who were living at that time. And one of the things that they discovered from their Bible study rediscovered, I would say. They certainly did not invent it because we find that this is the method that is used in Scripture alone. Uh, But that was the historicist interpretation of prophecy. Now, we may think today that the historicist interpretation of prophecy and our understanding of um, the identifications that we have been talking about uh, during this seminar, uh, the contrast between uh, the, 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 the papacy and, and the church and, and so forth, that this is all stuff that, that Adventists have come up with, but we've learned that that's certainly not the case, right? That this has been around for a very, very long time and that we have in fact been standing on the shoulders of the early reformers who have worked on this. We have built on what they have established. And if you have a chance ever to read through, and I know it it's a, takes about this much space in your shelf, but you can also go online to the L. N. G. White website um, online or the L. N. G. White Research Center online, and you can look at the Adventist Heritage area, and you can you can look at all these books and search them as well. But if you ever read through the Prophetic Faith of Our Fathers by Leroy Froom, you will see that the historicist interpretation of prophecy and the prophetic understanding that we have inherited has been, he documents this very, very carefully through time in these four volumes that, again, take up this much space. And I've been reading through those recently again, and I've been impressed. I've been impressed of what amazing insights Scripture gives us and how so many others, high-ranking officials, even archbishops in the Catholic Church, Professors like Melanchthon and Luther in the Catholic Church, as they studied scripture, discovered these truths, and began to write. Famous scientists like Sir Isaac Newton, who wrote more really on the prophetic nature of, of prophecy in the Bible in Daniel and Revelation than he ever did in physics, but today we, we laud him for, his, for being the father of modern physics. Um, these individuals spent enormous amount of time, and when this country was established as a Protestant nation, when the Puritans escaped persecution in the old world and came to the new world, and when so many others began to come into this country and began to establish a, a new nation here, and when they established universities here, those universities were founded on Protestant principles. If you study Froome carefully, and he documents this in in his volumes, the the, the, the Protestant uh, uh Uh, universities that that were established here. I'm talking about Harvard. I'm talking about Yale. I'm talking about Princeton. I'm talking about the Ivy League institutions that that we now uh, think of in such high terms. They were founded as religious institutions to train clergy and to train um, lawyers and to train um, government officials for this new country that was being established. And if you study carefully the presidents of those institutions and what they wrote, they spent a huge amount of time focusing on prophecy and the historicist interpretation of prophecy. Today, all of that seems lost, but it's very interesting. At Harvard University, in fact, the famous Dudleyan lectures were established very early on in its history. And one of those Dudleyan lectures, the fourth lecture was on Romanism and the evils of Romanism. Can you imagine a lectureship at Harvard like that today? (laughs) Or at Yale. By the way, why was Yale established? Why was Princeton established? When Harvard began to move away from its fundamentals and its Protestant heritage and scripture, these institutions were established to carry along the torch. In other words, when one institution became more liberal, another institution was established and was going back to those sources. And so this is the history of our movement here. And recently I've written, I've written, I'm sorry, I have not written anything, but recently I have read a very powerful book uh, that is on my shelf, an 800-page book, over 800-page book called The Dying of the Light. It's actually written by a Catholic scholar who looks at the Protestant heritage of university and the university system in the United States and documents the dying of the light at American higher education in this country. And I think we need to be very careful that we don't follow that trend, even in our higher education in our church today. We need to be very careful to remain with the fundamentals. Now, of course... Through this and through William Miller and others, we, we we came up with elaborate schemes and and ideas of these prophetic timelines. And by the way, not all of this um, is 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 an Adventist or Millerite timeline. Some of it, again, it was established already early on by the reformers. Others, of course, other aspects were added on later. Um, but we have here a very very interesting conception. Of time and the end of time and how that will progress through time. But of course, in the Counter-Reformation, the church was not idle, were they? And they established new methods of interpretation of prophecy that would divert the focus and the emphasis on Catholicism as the fulfillment of that period, that 1260-year period in the middle uh, of the church. To, to take the attention away from the so-called Antichrist, to take that attention away and to put it either in the past or in the future. Francisco Ribera, who lived in the 16th century, notice he was born just 20 years after Luther nailed the 95 Theses on the door at Wittenberg. A brilliant Jesuit priest a doctor of theology from Spain, came up with the concept of futurism, the idea that all of these prophetic elements that we have uh, assigned and looked at, uh, all of these prophetic elements uh, that were assigned to the Pope by the Reformers, that this was all to take place way off in the future at the very end of time, this dispensation in the future And by the way, dispensationalism, which is very popular today in most Protestant circles, uh, is a form of futurism as well. We don't have time to go into all of the details of this today. The Oxford Handbook of Eschatology, which was just published 10 years ago, says this. And by the way, this is a whole series. The Oxford Handbook series is a whole series on all kinds of different subjects. And they did one on eschatology. I thought that was kind of interesting. For those of you who don't know what eschatology means, it means the study of last day events. Futurism argues that revelation looks beyond the first century to the period immediately before the end times. So it skips a whole segment of history. Thus, the book was not written for those who received it, but for those living much later. He's referring here to the book of Revelation. Jesuit scholars, after the Reformation, refined this approach to prove that current attempts to identify the Pope as the Antichrist could not possibly be true since the Antichrist will not be revealed until far into the future, just before the parousia, just before the second coming. I'm sharing this with you because sometimes we think that these are Adventist conspiracy theories that we come up with, you know? But this is the Oxford Handbook produced by Oxford University Press, one of the oldest institutions, uh, European institutions in, in the world. So this is very significant. There was another Jesuit scholar who lived just a few years later and wrote just a few years later, also from Spain, Luis de Alcazar, and he came up with another concept. I shouldn't say he came up with it. He, he reintroduced it, if you will, uh, because it had been around in the past uh, as well. We can go all the way back to Porphyry and others um, in the early centuries of the Christian church, but he, he popularized again, or at least uh, tried to popularize the idea of preterism Now, I want to show you this graph just to kind of illustrate what we're talking about. Preterism, preter is the Latin term for past, assumes that all prophetic elements were not really prophecy in and of themselves. They were simply foretelling events that had already taken place in the past, and maybe there was some prophetic element, but all of this was uh, fulfilled in the past and they saw the Antichrist actually as Nero um, in the first century, some of the um, early early uh, writers in this. So, so it, it put everything into the past. And um, we'll look at how this has had an impact in our church as well. Futurism, as you can see up here, put everything into the future, right over here. And so the 1260 years of papal supremacy that Protestants had been teaching uh, since their, their beginnings, um, this period of time, and, and different dates were given by different Protestants for where these 1260 days fit. But uh, that, that idea um, was then relegated as not relevant anymore. Here's another graph that I think is interesting. To differentiate historicism, what is historicism? We understand prophecy as being fulfilled over time in a continuous manner. Think about Daniel chapter two. Daniel chapter two is a prophecy that begins with Daniel in the context of Babylon. What does he say to Nebuchadnezzar? You, O king, are the head of gold, right? But after you shall come a what? Another kingdom. And he describes that kingdom, and then he describes the third kingdom, and then he describes the fourth kingdom, and then he describes describes the fourth kingdom, as it continues down all the way to the toes, right? That iron continues all the way down to the toes, but it is mixed with iron and clay. And what is the end of that prophecy? A rock that is cut out without human hands that comes and strikes the base of the image. It doesn't strike the head because Babylon is in the past. It doesn't strike the arms and chest of silver, the thighs of bronze, or the legs of iron. It strikes at the very end of history, and that is a kingdom that will last forever. That's Christ's kingdom. So the idea of historicist prophecy is a continual movement of prophecy and prophetic interpretation that begins at the time of the prophet and continues all the way down continuously through to the end. And Daniel 7, 8, and 9, and 11, I believe, and we believe, are all focusing in deeper in detail at how that, that prophet, those prophetic elements are playing out in history. So it's a continuous line of prophecy in history from the beginning to the end. Okay? And that's so, what's so beautiful about the 2300 day prophecy in 1844. It continues. It starts at the beginning and it comes all the way down to 1844. That's the big, big, biggest time prophecy that we have in history. But what happens when you introduce preterism is that all of this has been fulfilled in the past. And when you introduce futurism, it's all to be fulfilled way off in the future. And us, who are living in the prophetic historical period and the reformers who were living in the prophetic historical period and could see what was happening around them and were applying what they could see with what was taking place in their life, all that vanishes in these two concepts of preterism and futurism because it is simply relegated to the past or the future. By the way, historical criticism today, which is very prevalent in most secular institutions and also In many religious institutions we talked about Lutheranism yesterday and we talked about uh, Catholicism being able to sign a joint declaration on justification because they have the same method of interpretation of prophecy which is or I should say of the Bible which is historical criticism but um, that is a very preterist viewpoint again that there is no real prophetic future uh, prediction. I mean, you and I, we, we, we cannot in and of ourselves predict the future. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, a month from now, two months from now, a year from now. We, we don't have that unless we have that revealed from on high somehow, from God somehow. So so they have determined that, that many of this cannot happen. And preterism is really found with historical criticism today. Futurism has been completely um, taken over by Protestants since 19. 19- since the early 1900s and the publication of the Schofield Reference Bible. And so what does that do with papal Rome in the 1260 years? It disappears. It disappears. By the way, we haven't talked about a fourth element, idealism. This is the most popular element today, even among Christian scholars. And this is a spiritualization of the very specific identifications made by Protestant historicism. The very specific identifications, we'll talk about this now, but this is a spiritualization of all of those. And uh, we'll look at what is taking place there. So here, if we look at historicist prophetic dates and many of you know some of these dates from your Bible studies and from Revelation seminars and Daniel seminars you've gone to, but these are not something that we invented, but this is something that comes from Scripture itself and something that was very well understood by the reformers, um, even though <coughs> <coughs> excuse me, even though it came with fuller clarity as time moved on. Today we are struggling in our church with some of these elements of prophetic interpretation. I'll be very honest with you. I'm not gonna mention names today. Maybe there's an appropriate time to do that. But um, we're struggling because um, for young people today, let me tell you something that you may not know. Peer pressure doesn't end with high school or college. Peer pressure is something that you continue to deal with your entire life. And peer pressure in scholarship is some of the most intense peer pressure that you will experience to fit into the academic mold. Educational institutions were once established to draw people to the word of God and to the Bible. Today they are established to propagate human ideas and the ideas of professors and propagate their influence for future generations. And so we need to be very careful, we need to be very careful and I think, and I need to be careful how I say this, but I, want, I, I think that peer pressure has had a huge influence in some of the thinking in our uh, circles among our scholars today. I'm not saying everyone. I'm saying some of them. But that influence continues to ripple on to their students and other students as well. And we need to be very, very cautious about this. We need to study the word of God as never before. And if we put aside the spirit of prophecy as we study the Word of God and think that exegesis is the only way to arrive to conclusions, we are putting ourselves on dangerous grounds. We need to understand that exegesis is important, but we've been given a prophetic voice for this time as well. And that prophetic voice guards us from many of the various ideas and winds of doctrine that are blowing around today. The Ford crisis, I was just a boy, but the Ford crisis was an example of this, and my father, who was very involved in that uh, experience, which was very painful for our church, and very painful to all individuals involved, and in which we lost many of our many of our premier pastors and clergy during that time, um, that was largely an issue of peer pressure and wanting to fit in with the. Protestant interpretations that would mainstream Adventism into what current Protestant thinking was without looking at what past Protestant thinking was. The 2300 days, the sanctuary, and the judgment were all questioned because they were uniquely Adventist ideas. Well, I should say they were scriptural ideas, but the Adventist church went on in the reformatory movement to find These important teachings in Scripture. The year-day principle was removed, and preterism was very important in this interpretive uh, model, because uh, Professor Ford believed that that um, that this twenty-three hundred days were literal twenty-three hundred days, and all this was fulfilled in the time of Antigus the Fourth Epiphanes, a Greek Hellenistic. uh, king who ruled, and uh, that all of this was done there. We don't have time to go into this. There's there's great resources that you can listen to on this topic in other places. Daniel was not foretelling a future event. He was simply foretelling something that had already taken place. So this was preterism that was applied. And by the way, with, when you read most of the historical critical commentaries on Daniel, this is the position that they take, because they do not believe in divine intervention in human history, and they do not believe in a prophetic uh, ability to predict the future. So Daniel was simply reflecting what was taking place in his time. And Daniel, by the way, wasn't writing in the sixth century BC where the Bible places him. Daniel was writing in the second century and was simply reflecting what was taking place during his time and what had taken place in the past. Of course, it still causes a problem because what do you do then with Rome who had not emerged yet? as an empire, there's still an issue there, but we don't have time to go into all of that. So Ford tried to remove some of these important, the important time prophecy of the 2300 evenings and mornings, uh, the 2300 day year prophecy. Since that time, there have been future, more, more attempts. And I, I refer to this as eclecticism. It's taking a little bit from futurism, a little bit from preterism, a little bit from historicism and trying to, trying to make all of them kind of work in order to fit into the, to the ethos of what people are thinking today in, in circles where they're studying these books and studying the book of Revelation and Daniel. It's dangerous to do that. Because what I would like to suggest to you today is that these are mutually exclusive, interpretive processes of Scripture. They're mutually exclusive. You cannot have historicism and have futurism at the same time. They're completely different ideas, and they were founded on principles that would take away historicism altogether, do you understand? That's why we went back to look at what was happening in the fifteenth and six, uh, the sixteenth and seventeenth centuries. But what we see today, even reflected in some of our most important publications, is that what we and what other Protestant reformers have seen as the five key time prophecies in Revelation, four of those time prophecies have been, if not removed altogether, have been placed in a context where there are three or four different possibilities. And when you do that, what do you do? You take a very specific application that has been made by literally hundreds and thousands of reformers for centuries. You take that one application that has been made for the f- direct fulfillment of that prophecy, and when you multiply that to five different possible interpretations, what do you do? You don't have any interpretation left. It becomes pluralism, and pluralism destroys absolute truth. Are you understanding what I'm saying here? So that's the problem. So the 10 days or years of uh, found in, in the church in Smyrna among the seven churches right at the beginning of Revelation in chapter uh, two and three, uh, Smyrna, that 10-day, applying the 10-year print, 10 days equals 10-year principle, you'll go back to Froom and you see that over and over and over and over again, this 10-year period was applied to 303 to 313 A.D., which was the Diocletian. Diocletian was an emperor in Rome, who tried to exterminate, completely exterminate Christianity. And today, you look at some of our publications, and it may be Diocletian as traditionally assumed, but it could also be this, and it could also be that. And it might simply refer to as an indefinite uh, event that happened sometime during that time. This is a problem. The three and a half days or years And the two witnesses, which we have interpreted and connected along with the Protestant reformers clearly to the French Revolution, again, has been reinterpreted. The 150 years of the fifth trumpet, the 391 years and 15 days of the sixth trumpet, which Ellen White writes in Great Controversy was clearly fulfilled in August 11, 1840, when the Ottoman Empire fell, has been reinterpreted. And this, she was simply reflecting Victorian ideas and wasn't really speaking in an authoritative manner when she wrote this in the book Great Controversy. When we start playing those kinds of games, folks, what, where do we stop? Where do we stop? Who makes the decision of what is authoritative and what is not authoritative? When we start picking and choosing, of what is authoritative and what is not authoritative in an inspired prophet or what is authoritative and not authoritative in the Bible, we're putting ourselves in dangerous grounds and we become the judge over scripture and the judge over the prophet. I want to be humbly submitted to the word of God Amen. because I'm neither the son of a prophet, I'm neither the prophet nor the son of a prophet. And I want to be submitted to the prophetic word that we have in scripture and the spirit of prophecy. The only time prophecy that is retained because it's so important for our Adventist identity and our Adventist historicist interpretation is the 1260 years. In some circles, I'm saying. okay, Now, our evangelists are still preaching this, praise the Lord. I was recently in a different part of the world I'll tell you, it was down under. That gives you kind of an idea where. It was in Australia. It was an island, a set of islands close to Australia. And I was invited to speak, my wife and I were invited to speak to our evangelists of that division, South Pacific Division. And it was a wonderful and joyous time. And we just were resonating on so many things. And I want to tell you, God has faithful people everywhere in his work around the world. And we need to pray for one another and pray to encourage one another in the work that we have. But as we were speaking, you know, these, these men, they, they just opened up their hearts and they said, why, why are we giving up our distinctive message? This is not the time. But what we are preaching as we do our evangelistic meetings, it's not the same as what others are saying in our church anymore. We cannot relegate to our evangelists the job of doing evangelism and think that in the ivory tower of scholarship we can do something completely different. We need to work together as a team. We need to support one another as a team. And as we do that, God will bless the unity of the church as we move forward in time. Sorry, I'm taking too much time on this. 666, Vicarious fili Day, which the Reformers again and again and again applied specifically with absolute certainty to the papacy. The church, our church, has had a long history wrestling with this. And um, in a recent Sabbath school quarterly, some years ago, a very prominent scholar in our church Said that we cannot interpret this literally any longer. It simply is and reflects an imperfection and rebellion against God. It simply reflects imperfection. It's an imperfect number. Seven is the perfect number. Six is an imperfect number. I would invite you to read or pick up sometime the magisterial work of a South African scholar, Edwin de Cock, 835 pages. If you're having trouble going to sleep at night you can read this Um, it's it's a fantastic book that is going back the research that was done in this book going back to the original documents of the Reformation finding books that have been extinct and almost lost because of the counter-reformation and finding those books in some of the oldest libraries in Europe and tracing back this teaching and the basis of this teaching to these reformers, it's an amazing work of scholarship. But Edwin de Kock is not a Ph.D. in theology. He has a Ph.D. in literature and research. But he took on something that he was very concerned about. And we should be as well. When we start spiritualizing away the distinctives that have created the protest in the first place, we're placing ourselves in dangerous ground. A couple of other examples. In one major publication today that's used as a textbook for revelation, the lake of fire is not literal, it's simply a metaphor for complete annihilation. What does that even mean? I mean, will the wicked be destroyed or will they not? And, and how? I mean, if you read Ellen White, she's very, very clear about this. Very clear. The two witnesses are not the Old and New Testament. Well, they could be. That's how Ellen White and the Protestant reformers have also interpreted them. The two witnesses are not the Old and New Testament, but they're the people of God. And there are other interpretations that are here as well. The seven last plagues are not literal, but describe spiritual realities. You see what's happening? Now, I'm a a historian and an archaeologist, and when I excavate sites in the ancient world, I can tell you that the judgments of God were not spiritual realities. They were literal realities. And when I excavate destructions and destruction layers at these ancient tells. And I'm digging through two meters of destruction of tiglath or the III's destruction of Chatzor, or Sennacherib's destruction of Lachish or Nebuchadnezzar's destruction of Ekron. These are not spiritual realities. These are literal events that devastated the ancient population of Judah and Israel. And God will not act differently today as he did in his word and in ancient history. We need to understand God from what happened in the past and what will happen in the future. These, we shouldn't bifurcate these and simply spiritualize them away. My Jewish friends have done this with the coming of the Messiah. He hasn't come. Well, he has come, hasn't he? But for them, he hasn't come. And they've been waiting and waiting and waiting. And for many of them, the Messiah is simply something that happens internally. It's not even something that happens externally anymore. This is spiritualizing literal realities. And when we do this with prophecy, we remove completely the message and mission of what we have been called to do in our church. If the Reformers were alive today, they would be amazed to see the ghost of the Roman Empire reestablishing itself again in leaping strides. Do we care as much as the Reformers did? What caused a German monk to have the audacity to do what he did in 1517? Could it be that truth with a capital T as found in Scripture compelled him even moved him with such a a forceful way to expose the errors of a system that had wholly and completely replaced the good news of the gospel and plunging the world into darkness for so many centuries? Is that what drove him to translate the Bible and point believers back to the word of God, the sacred text of scripture? If Luther was moved with the plight of his people then. Should we not, in an age of globalization, be moved with compassion for the billions of people around the world that have not really heard the gospel message, which is contained in the three angels' messages? Should we not be moved with compassion for them That is the mission that we've been given in this time and in this period. Yesterday, Giselle spent considerable time on this map showing what the papacy itself taught and believed from its own documents of the connection and the continuation between pagan Rome and between papal Rome that they saw themselves as the fulfillment of a Roman empire that would continue. If this is not the legs of iron continuing and the iron that continues into the toes, I don't know what is. They're saying it themselves. We don't need to say it. We just look at what they're saying. If they can do that, and if we can look also at the little horn in Daniel 7 and 8 and see that he moved first, what, horizontally as he conquered representing pagan or imperial Rome, and then what did he do? He moved up heavenward and challenged even the Most High. If we see that fulfilled in prophecy and we see that that is what the church is even saying of itself, why do we hesitate pointing this out today? The reformers didn't have a problem doing that. It's ironic, though, that in their connection with the past, they didn't go to ancient Rome. They went to Jesus Christ and the teachings of Scripture. A humble man, God incarnate, who came in the midst of a Roman Empire and with the teachings of the gospel turned the world upside down. So, we come back to the question. Is the historicist interpretation of prophecy still important today? Is it a coincidence that we as a church today are almost the only, and certainly we are the only worldwide movement with as many hospitals and educational institutions around the world and, 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 and moving in a rapid pace as we continue to grow as a church, is it a coincidence that we are virtually the only and in fact the only worldwide movement that still upholds the historicist interpretation of prophecy today? Because most of the other Protestant denominations have given this up. Their heritage and what made them who they are has been spiritualized into oblivion. I don't think it's a coincidence. And because of that, I believe that we have been called for such a time as this. I want to read what Ellen White says on page 588 in Great Controversy. Through the two great errors, the immortality of the soul and Sunday sacredness, these are two of the aspects that I listed below, Satan will bring the people under his deceptions. While the former lays the foundation of spiritualism, the latter creates a bond of sympathy with Rome, that is, Sunday worship. The Protestants of the United States will be foremost in stretching their hands across the Gulf to grasp the hand of spiritualism. They will reach over the abyss to clasp hands with the Roman power. And under the influence of this, what, threefold union, this country will follow in the steps of Rome in trampling on the rights of conscience. This has not happened completely yet, but we can see it beginning to happen, can't we? And so we need to be aware of what is taking place, and we need to be aware of these elements as we read them in the spirit of prophecy. We can see some of these things taking place already. We know that the ecumenical movement spurred by the charismatic movement is part of this spiritualism that is taking place but there's another element here too and it's interesting that a colleague of mine at southern evidence university who's a professor in the biology department a medical doctor dr lucinda hill recently gave a paper on the connection between evolution and spiritualism it's very interesting actually were the influences on Charles Darwin and some of the early individuals who came up with the concept of evolution. And then there is the fantastic article in the two books that just were published by the Pacific Press and by Andrews University Press on creation in 2015, in which Angel Rodriguez, the former director of the Biblical Research Institute, has written an article tracing back the concepts of evolution to ancient Egypt, and spiritualism, because that's what ancient Egypt was steeped in. We should not think that evolution is a science. And if you've been in um, Clifford Goldstein, well, you haven't, because you probably have been here. But uh, if you if you have if you have the chance after this GYC to listen to Clifford Goldstein's presentations, he's just published a book on science um, and uh, and creation. Uh, I would, I would encourage you to do so. It's not a coincidence that Charles Darwin finished his first manuscript on the Origin of the Species. I don't think, anyway, in 1844, right at the time when the great disappointment took place and when this movement was beginning to care, gather to, to gather some steam. Of course, he waited. It was, didn't have the courage to publish it, and it was published in 1859 after his death. But that same year in 1844, another extremely influential book at the time, which we don't hear about very often, by Robert Chambers was also published. And this book had a huge influence in the scientific community of that time. It was published in 1844 anonymously by Chambers and it was called The Natural History of Creation and he espoused the same teachings that Darwin was espousing. This book became a bestseller, not only in Europe, but also in the United States. Abraham Lincoln had a copy of this volume in his library. You need to understand that these movements of evolution were gaining hold just at the time when the prophetic movement of this church was gaining hold and the proper understanding of what happened in 1844 was taking place. And I don't think it's a coincidence. I don't think it's a coincidence. Today, the Catholic Church has as well embraced the concept of evolution, or at least theistic evolution. John Paul II, in his uh, address to the uh, Pontifical um, Academy of Sciences in 1996, said this today almost a half a century after the publication of the encyclical he's referring to one of his predecessors who had addressed the same group new knowledge has led to the recognition of the theory of evolution as more than a hypothesis are you with me what is something that is more than a hypothesis It becomes fact right It is indeed remarkable that this theory has been progressively accepted by researchers following a series of discoveries in various fields of knowledge. The convergence, neither sought nor fabricated, of the results of work that was conducted independently is in itself a significant argument in favor of this theory. You have to understand that these elements are are real. Pope Francis, who addressed the same body The Pontifical Academy of Sciences in 2014 uh, cited his predecessor and Pope Benedict XVI who invited for the first time a president of this academy to take part in the synod on the new evangelization, conscious of the importance of science in modern culture. You see, the church is smart. It's adapting itself to what is taking place in culture today and making itself relevant When we read in Genesis the account of creation, we risk imagining that God was a magician with such a magic wand as to be able to do everything. That's imagination, by the way. However, it was not like that. He created beings and left them to develop according to the internal laws that he gave each one so that they would develop and reach their fullness. This is a theistic evolution perspective. He gave autonomy to the beings of the universe and at the same time that he assured them of his continual presence, giving being to every reality and thus creation went forward for centuries and centuries, millennia and millennia until it became what we know today. Is it coincidence, my friends, that in the message to the Laodicean church, which is us today, that in the beginning of that message and the beginning of each of the seven churches' messages, what do we have? We have an identification of what? We have an uh, uh, identification of Christ as the person who is sending these messages. And this is what is introduced. This is how Christ is introduced as the author of the message to Laodicea. He He is introduced as the one These things says the amen. That's Christ, the amen. The faithful and true witness. Is there truth still today? Yes, because we have Jesus Christ, the faithful and true witness, and we have his word, the faithful and true witness, who is what? The beginning of the creation of God. Is it coincidence that the creator or the creatorship of Christ is emphasized in this end time church? Because This would be such a huge issue in the time in which we live today. Is it a coincidence that the three angels' messages, which we have been commissioned to give today, begins with these words, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Again, a reference to the creator God. Quotation from the fourth commandment here in this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The choice is ours today, and I believe that as a movement, we have been called for such a time as this. Our name, Seventh-day Adventist, reflects the reality of what we have been called to do. It is a complete system, a complete understanding of Scripture from beginning until the end, from the book of Genesis, chapter 1, to the very last chapter of Revelation. It is an understanding that emphasizes the creation that was completed on the seventh day when God rested and created a time in space for us to spend with him, and a truth that we must share with others because this is the sign of our allegiance to him in the time in which we live. And we are Adventists that are looking forward to the second coming of Jesus. These two elements should not be taken for granted because the churches that have given up their understanding of the first things, that is protology, that have given up their clear understanding of a literal creation at the beginning, are churches that very easily begin to spiritualize the eschatology of the second coming as well. Because if God chose 600,000 years to develop humanity at the beginning, rather than creating him on the sixth day very quickly, if he decided to use evolution over that period of time, what hope do we have at the second coming to be changed in the twinkling of an eye? and for immortality to take on, or for mortality to take on immortality. What, what hope do we have in an instantaneous create, recreation at the end? These ideas of protology and eschatology are inextricably linked and cannot be separated from one another. The experience of these noble reformers, Ellen White writes, contains a lesson for all succeeding ages. Satan's manner of working against God and his word has not changed. He is still as much expo- opposed to the Scriptures being made the guide of life as in the 16th century, in our lifetime. There is a wide departure from their doctrines and precepts, and there is a need of a return to the great Protestant principle, the Bible and the Bible only as the rule of faith and duty. Satan is still working through every means which he can control to destroy religious liberty. The anti-Christian power which the protesters of Spires rejected is now with renewed vigor seeking to reestablish its lost supremacy. The same unswerving adherence to the word of God manifested at that crisis of the Reformation. And if you remember what happened at Spires, that is when the Protestant princes knelt down before Emperor Charles V and offered their heads in submission, but would not relegate their position as protesters and as reformers in the movement. It is that unswerving adherence that is the only hope of reform today. So I want to ask you the question as we close today, will we cooperate with the Holy spirit? as this quote from Acts of the Apostles says, by the cooperation of the divine spirit, the apostles did a work that shook the world. To every nation was the gospel carried in a single generation. Is that still possible today? Twelve men went out and in a matter of a short period of time, there were millions in the Roman Empire that accepted the faith. Today... We have many more, and our call is to go out and to finish the work that God has given us. I wanted to end with a story, but my time is up. Do you guys want me to tell a short story of 10 minutes? Okay. And you can still get to somewhere else in five minutes. This is not according to my script, and I'm going to get in trouble by the rest of the GYC leadership. This week, I was with my family in Michigan. We celebrated Christmas, and my youngest sister, Melissa, had shared with me a few weeks ago when I was visiting a scrapbook that she had put together in high school about our family history. And I saw pictures that I'd never seen before. And um, I spent time the last week uh, scanning many of these in. Some of you know my family story, uh, A Thousand Shall Fall, about a family that grew up in Nazi Germany and lived in Nazi Germany during a very difficult time in Earth's history. And I want to share this story with you today because I believe that it's not only by standing for truth that we're going to win the world. We have to have the spirit of Jesus. We cannot only stand on truth. We have to have an experience with Jesus that transforms our lives and makes us winsome Christians that people will want to spend time with and be with. My family is pictured here. This is in 1938, the year before the war began. They were in Frankfurt, Germany, where my grandfather was a pastor. Eventually, he became the publishing director of the Central European Division as it became known then. But at this time, look at the smiles on everyone's face. It was before the war. Nobody had any idea that a war would engulf Europe that would last six years. My grandfather, at the age of 40, was drafted into the German army as a Seventh-day Adventist minister and a conscientious objector. I don't have time to tell you much about that part of the story, but I want to focus on my grandmother today. This picture was taken, sorry. Oh, it's on the same slide. This picture was taken a few years later in 1941 as they're standing in front of their apartment complex in the city of Frankfurt, Germany, the banking capital of Germany today. And that's where the children grew up while Grandpa was off or Opa was off in the war. It was a difficult time with bombings incessant. One day there was a loud knock on the door. Kurt, the oldest, who's on the right over there, went to answer the door, a very sharp-looking gentleman in a civilian suit like I'm wearing today with a pin that didn't say GYC on it but that had a swastika on it and was a symbol of the Nazi party was standing at the door. He had an armband around his arm which also had a swastika on it and he simply asked very pleasantly, is your mother at home? and Kurt brought my grandmother his mother to the door. The children were ushered into the kitchen while they had a conversation in the parlor and this gentleman spoke with my grandmother for quite some time and then later on when he left my grandmother came into the kitchen and said, children, we have a very serious situation. Your father and I have just been invited to join the Nazi party. And this is very serious. You see, in those days, you couldn't join a political party simply as a volunteer like we can today. Back then, you were only invited to join the uh, Nazi party. And my grandparents had not had that invitation, and now she was faced with a very crucial decision. Of course, it meant great privileges. It meant extra ration cards. It meant that instead of one pair of shoes a year, the children would receive two pairs of shoes a year. As a member of the Nazi party, you were part of the elite. You were part of the governing elite. You were invited to the operas. You were invited to the latest concerts, and you were part of a a class of people that was quite different. And yet, my grandmother knew that the principles of the Nazi party was not something that jived very well with their Christian experience. So she wrote a letter to my grandfather, in fact, she told the gentleman that she did not make major decisions by herself, but only in consultation with her husband did she make major decisions, and that she would have to uh, consult with him. So she wrote a letter to my grandfather on the Western Front, Eastern Front, I'm sorry, And she waited for a reply. That reply didn't come. When the end of the month came and the ration cards and the check from the government for my grandfather's services were to arrive, that check did not arrive. There was a dear family in the church that during prayer meeting heard my grandmother's prayer and decided to give her money. They owned a grocery store, give her food and tie her over for the month. When the end of that second month came, there was still no check in the mail. When the third month came, there was still no check. When the fourth month came, there was still no check. check. And my grandmother wrote a very anxious letter to her husband on the eastern front and said, I don't know what's going on. You're serving your country, but we are not receiving anything here, and we don't have anything left. You see, the the family that had been supporting them told them all their savings was used up. There was nothing left. She sent that in the mail, and the next day there was another knock on the door. Another man was standing there similarly dressed as the first man had been several months earlier. This man simply handed Kurt a letter and said, Please give this to your mother. Kurt did so, and it was a summons to party headquarters in the city of Frankfurt. Party headquarters was known as the Brown House, it was a very imposing building, and it was also known to be the headquarters of the Gestapo, the secret police. People who had appointments at the Brown House rarely returned from those appointments. In fact, the children had a rumor that there were door handles going into the building, but there were no door handles to get out of the building. My grandmother knew it was very serious, and so she said, children, you're not going to school that day. I will be making separate arrangements for each of you in case I do not come home, that you will be taking separately to different places, and that you will be uh, allowed, church members will take you away into safety. I don't want anybody of our family to be taken and uh, put into uh, Nazi schools and brainwashed the way they will if you don't have parents here at home. And I don't want you to have to be tempted to lie to one another, so I'm not going to tell you where you're going. I have to cut the story a little short here. So. My grandmother left Monday morning. The children were at home, all of them anxious. My father, you should know, was very young at this age. That's him in the middle over here doesn't have a nice smile on his face does he like his brothers and sisters I don't know what was going on then but he was 10 when the war ended and this was about two years before the war ended so he would have been eight I want you to imagine at the age of eight faced with the prospect of not seeing your mother again so there were hugs and there were prayers as grandmother left to go to her appointment as time passed The children waited. They were waiting for the streetcar to come down the street to the apartment. They could not see it clearly because there was a large tree in the distance and that was blocking the view, but they could see the people's legs under that tree. And as they were looking uh, every 15 minutes for that streetcar to see if mother would arrive before their destination and appointment would come to go separate ways, they waited anxiously. And at the last streetcar before the appointed time, Suddenly, they saw a pair of legs moving much, much quicker than all the others. They could recognize their mother's walk, and sure enough, there she was. And they screamed, Yay, mother is at home! Oh, quiet! The Halabachs upstairs, they were spies. They were Nazi members of the party, and they were spies for the whole apartment complex. My grandmother came in the house. There were great smiles. There, were, there was a, a, a sweet reunion. And then my grandmother shared her story and said, children, I have to share with you what the Lord did today. He says, I, I waited in the lobby for many hours. The minutes ticked by. My appointment time passed. She says, I didn't know what was going on, but finally, finally, and I knew that you would have to leave very soon. Finally, I, I got to the point where where I I was called in to my appointment. I went into this opulent, beautiful office. She says, there was mahogany, a beautiful mahogany desk and and mahogany lining the walls. And there were master paintings on the walls and beautiful carpets that that were piled on top of each other. It was a luxurious office. And there standing behind the desk in this large office was a man who stood and greeted me very kindly and said, Frau Hasel, do you know why you're here today? My grandmother, who didn't mince words, says, yes, I believe I do. She says, several months ago, I was asked to join the Nazi party and I haven't given a decision yet. And he opened up an envelope or a, a manila folder in front of him and he says, do you recognize these? And she handed my, he handed my mother, my grandmother, the two letters that she had written to her husband. The originals that had never reached the Eastern Front. He says, why would you write what you wrote in these letters here? Why would you demoralize the troops by telling them that your government is not taking care of you? Why would you do the things that you did here? Why would you say these things? The fatherland has supported and is going to support their families all through the years. Why would you refuse to join the Nazi party, which has given this country its heritage, which has given this country its greatness, which has given this country... And he began to become very angry. And and at one point, he paused, and my grandmother was able to get a few words in. And very calmly and very collectedly, she said, It's very simple, sir. I'm a Seventh day Adventist Christian. And as a Seventh day Adventist Christian, I cannot join a party that denies, in essence, the very existence of God. And he paused for a moment, and he said, Who did you say you were? I'm a Seventh day Adventist Christian which church do you go to? And she told him. And he says, interesting. And then he says, and I'm going to make up a name because I don't remember the name, but do you know the Miller family? My grandmother knew the Miller family very well, but she didn't want to become an informant now at Gestapo headquarters. So she paused for a moment, but the man's demeanor had changed and there was a hint of a smile on his face, not a sarcastic smile, but a good smile. And so she said, well, maybe I need to risk it. She says, Yes, I know the Miller family. He's our head elder. He's been serving as the acting pastor of the church while my husband has been on the Russian front. Interesting. He picked up the phone. He says, Please check if Mrs. Hazel is a member of such and such Seventh day Church. A few minutes later, the phone, a few seconds later, the phone rang. It's confirmed. He says, Interesting. He says, You know, I know the Miller family as well. They are our neighbors. We've just moved into a new community and we have a new home and the Millers are our next door neighbors and they've been the most wonderful neighbors, the most incredible people that we've ever had the privilege of living next to. They have brought over loaves of bread. They've invited us over for dinner. They have been the most beautiful family and I've learned that they are Seventh-day Adventists and now you're a Seventh-day Adventist as well and you're members of the same church. And with that, he closed the folder he said, Frau Hasel, I don't want you to worry about this meeting that we had here today. I have full authority in this issue, and I will make sure that this office does not bother your family again. You'll receive the last four months of your checks and your ration cards, and everything will be fully restored to you. As my grandmother was walking to the door, and there was a handle on that side of the door... <laughs> He said, oh, by the way, Mrs. Hazel, Frau Hasel, I want to let you know that I'm not the gentleman that you had the appointment with today. He became violently ill this morning and was not able to come to the office. He was the director. He is the director of the party, but I am the associate director, and I want to let you know that I have full jurisdiction in this matter, and I will make sure that this office does not disturb you again. And my mother... My grandmother left and praising the Lord for His goodness. I want to leave you with these two thoughts. As I heard this story growing up, two thoughts came to my mind again and again. Thank the Lord for grandmothers and mothers and parents who stand up for their faith even though the heavens shall fall. And thank the Lord for faithful Seventh-day Adventists like the Miller family who exemplified Christian faith in the most dire circumstances regardless of who their neighbors were or who they not were. Maybe they didn't even know who their neighbors were, but they were good neighbors. And because of that, my family is here today. I just want to praise the Lord because we are living in end-time Babylon. And if Nazi Germany was a foretaste of that, it's going to get much worse in the time that we're living today. And we need to be very, very careful that we live the Christian walk because that witness will be as strong as the truths that we have been given for our time. And it is only through that witness that we will be given the opportunity to share the truth. Daniel was the top leader in his government after the king. But he did not criticize his government. He supported his king in making his king who God wanted him to become. May we have that kind of spirit as we continue to work as a church around the world to further his kingdom, a kingdom that will last forever. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, how good you have been to us And yet, sometimes we are cowards. The peer pressure of the world to conform is so strong. Help us to stand in the little things as Daniel and his friends did. So that when it comes to the major decisions, when lives are at stake, we can humbly yet firmly stand for you. Help us not to be Peters, warming our hands around the fire as Jesus was led to crucifixion and denying your name. Help us to be the Peter, that fully experienced forgiveness and asked to be hung upside down in Rome because he could not be hung on a cross the way his savior had been hung. Help us to be people who give up all self so that your kingdom and your work can go forward in the powerful and all merciful name of Jesus Christ. We pray, amen. This message was recorded at the GYC 2017 Conference Arise in Phoenix, Arizona. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.